Genesis chapter 37. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him, could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up, and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Sechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to them, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field and the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let's kill him. And throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of this dream, his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when... Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. 
And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some of the Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled up, pulled him up, and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Let's ask God to speak to us from his word. Father, we do thank you for the deep sense in our hearts that what we do together here is real, that we truly worship a God with songs of love and praise from our hearts that bring pleasure to your heart. And that, Father, you have been dwelling in the midst of our praise. And Father, as we are before you now, we do thank you for the Holy Spirit who has come to lead us into all truth, to take the things of Christ and reveal them to us. And so, Father, we do once again this evening say, Oh, Father, will you come and water your flock? Will you come and feed your sheep? Will you come, O God, and anoint our eyes to see more perfectly your great purposes in the earth today? Cause us to be more wonderfully caught up, our faith more strengthened, our hearts and wills more yielded. So, Father, we look to you now and thank you for your gracious promises. In Jesus' name, amen. In the next four evenings, I plan to stay in the story of Joseph, and we'll be going through one of the most beautiful and magnificent stories, really, that the world has ever known. It's a lovely story. It's an extraordinary story. It's one that's even appealed to the world who don't understand what it's all about. And they've made their musical about Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat and his extraordinary experiences. But it's a story not just of a man. It's a story about God and his greatness. A God who reigns over great nations, the greatest nations of those days, and also a God who reigns over tiny details of timing. A God who is wonderfully overruling the whole story, though sometimes he seems desperately absent. And sometimes from Joseph's point of view, he may wonder if he's just being tossed from pillar to post, circumstances like great waves of the ocean, throwing him from one situation to another, and where is God at all? And yet, essentially, it's a book about God and his great dealings. God's great purposes. But it's wrapped up in the life story of a man. And already this week we've been reminded that this sovereign God, this mighty God who rules over the nations, also is a God who has to do with human individuals, men and women who must respond to him. I believe God will teach us much from this story of Joseph. Let's just paint the picture. Let's put ourselves into the background story of this young man. He was only 17 years of age when he steps upon this stage. But he was essentially his father's favourite son. He was specially loved. He was born after delay and disappointments. You remember that Rachel 
was the beloved wife who somehow didn't produce the child she longed to produce. Jacob's other wife, Leah, had produced children and Rachel was becoming more and more distressed about this. And rather like his grandfather, we find that Jacob turned to another way to produce the child. And right from the background of this young man, Joseph, coming on the scene, behind it there are disappointments and waiting and frustrations before he bursts on the scene. But it's good for us to know something of this background because as Rachel was childless, so we find that somehow this strange family again produced the idea of a young maid being brought to the husband and she producing the child. And one would have thought that after Abraham's experience that this family would have seen the terrible results of taking things into our own hands in that kind of a way. And we need just to reflect upon that, that God has his way of bringing forth the child of his purpose. And in the church today, God has his way of bringing forth what he wants. The child of promise, even as Isaac was ultimately to be brought, brought forth for Abraham. And the producing of Ishmael was only a disaster. And there was terrible repercussions as a result of his birth. It's interesting to see how hard it is for us to learn that secret. How hard it is to wait for God. And if you look into Genesis chapter 30, you'll see how this happened with this wife saying, well, I can't stand it any longer that the other wife is producing a child. And so she says in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 3, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me, and has indeed heard my voice, and has given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And here this child was born, and there came this cry, God has vindicated me, God has done it. I have been able to produce fruit. But the whole thing was a lie. It wasn't of God. It wasn't God's purpose. And that very name, Dan, which says, God has vindicated me. If you look right through into the book of Revelation, where there is the final list of all the names of the children of Israel, you find that in Revelation chapter 7, there is that final record in history about this great family and it says there were 12,000 from the tribe of Judah and 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben and so on. Tribe after tribe is listed there. But as you go down that list in Revelation 7, you'll be hard-pressed to find Dan. You'll not find him there. He doesn't appear. What you find is that certainly Joseph is there and also Manasseh is there, one of Joseph's sons. Joseph's double portion comes through in the end in the book of Revelation. And though we may short-circuit God's program, though we may say, look, we're producing something, why bother to do it God's way? Why bother to wait? Why be so painstaking in doing the thing you're doing? 
Why do it God's way, God's time, by the promise? We have found a way to produce what we're after. Look, here's the fruit of it. And many a church can produce something that looks like fruit. And say, look, God is vindicating us. God is with us. We don't want to know all about this waiting for the thing that is genuine and from God, the promise of God. We can produce it. We may not say it in those terms, but in our hearts we we feel, yeah, we know how to produce it. We can do it our way. And here as this Dan is produced with that name which means God has vindicated me, in the short term we can say, oh look, God's vindicating us. We're bearing fruits. We're doing fine, thank you. Yet the final test is what does God write into eternity? What does God write down as the eternal significance of what we're producing? That's the awesomeness of what we're talking about in these days. We've seen many things that are done superficially. Many things that produce a quick harvest. We'll just get people together, we'll put the posters up, we'll get the broadcast going, we'll get the crowd in. Somehow we'll produce something. We can't be bothered with this restoration program. We can't be bothered with getting the foundations right. We can produce something. And there we vindicate ourselves. But in the end, it's what's written in to God's heavenly account that counts. And Dan isn't there. He doesn't feature. That was very short-term vindication. And they'd come through all that. And they'd seen the sorrow of that. And then, later on, this wonderful thing happens. Joseph, the genuine child, is born. That child who is going to be fulfilling the purpose of God. That child upon whom the blessing of God will fall. The one that was chosen by God even before he was born to fulfill a great purpose. I want us just to pause there and and see the great difference between the child that we can produce by our method and the child that God produces by his promise. Because it's right back with Abraham. God promised him a child. But he couldn't wait for God. Can I ask you this evening, as we're going through this week, and you've no doubt already heard things which have set up principles which could be quite costly to you, that waiting program, the difficulty that will be involved in producing a child like this. And there's the option. Shall we wait to produce a child like this? Or shall we go on somehow producing this other thing that we know we can do and vindicate ourselves? I believe one of the great things God is doing amongst us this week is calling us to face the realities. Or we can produce our own vindication. But will it be written into everlasting documents? Will it stand the test of time? Dan isn't there in the book of Revelation. But now, Joseph is born. He is beloved of his father. He's special to his father because he's the son of his old age and also because he's the son of this beloved wife. This wife that he loved from the beginning. The one who had won his heart as a young man. And now here he is, Joseph. The beloved son. The real miracle son. Now he loved him. And not only did he love him, but he gave him this coat. I'm so glad that this more recent translation gives him his multicoloured coat back. I was quite disappointed with the coat of long sleeves in those other translations. I thought, how boring long sleeves. <laughs> We're back to multicolours in the NASB. So I don't want to know your translation if it's long sleeves. He 
had a coat which marked him out. And uh, that wasn't just an incidental thing. It spoke of something. It says in 1 Chronicles and chapter 5, the opening verses, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And this coat signified the birthright that was being passed to him. That Reuben, who should have had it, Reuben, that firstborn, had failed. He had committed sin. He had committed the kind of sin that we shall later find on that Joseph is tested with and challenged with, but comes gloriously through, victoriously, but Reuben disqualified. And Joseph, wearing this coat, signified that he was the one upon whom the birthright had come. He was chosen by his father. He was beloved by his father. And at the age of 17, he seems to have been quite a pain in the neck. (laughs) He was hated by his brothers. We don't really know much about him, whether it was that uh, he was genuinely a pain in the neck, but we see this report that he went out and he saw his brothers and what they were doing. He brought back an unfavorable report to their father. And this young 17-year-old was hated by his brothers. That's the background of this story. Already he was hated. Already they hated the way that he was made favorite and had that particular key place. And then, to add to his problems, he had a dream. And in his dream, which he shared quite glibly and naively and happily with his brothers, he said, oh, I've seen a dream, I've had a vision. And he begins to tell the dream and vision. And then, a day or two later, he tells another dream and a vision, which is even more marvellous, with uh, now two more, sun and moon bowing down. And uh, he's quite full of this, it's very exciting, glorious to have these visions. And all the time, his brothers are hating him even more. So that the story which we just read suddenly takes place. It's a human story, human intrigue, spite, jealousy. And uh, they sell him down to Egypt. It's just a human story. You could write it into Dallas, if you like, just write for that. (laughs) family intrigue, jealousy and hatred. And really, you could read it at that level and uh, that's the end of it. They get rid of him. Now, to that background and that story that we read in the Bible, I want to tell you another story which wonderfully backs onto this one and overlaps it and, uh, in fact, is the story that God is writing. Would you look to Genesis chapter 15, please? Genesis 15, verse 13. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. 
and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Verse 16, then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Abraham then was told by God of generations to come and what would happen. God had a great plan that he would bring out of Abraham a mighty nation. First of all, it would be a family. And that family seems to be just a small family as it goes to Isaac and then down to Esau and Jacob. Just a small family. One might wonder how it's going to become a great nation to fill the earth. And then with this next generation of Jacob, the twelve sons, and God says to Abraham, I will take you down into Egypt. And then after this time span, you will come out again as a great nation. I will do it, God says. I'm going to do it. And later he says to Jacob, I will take you down into Egypt and there I will make of you a great nation. So although we can look superficially at this story and simply see a family feud, if we look behind it, we see the sovereign God. We see the plan of God, the program of God, that God is moving according to his great divine purpose. And we see that he's not only looking into the short term, but into the great redemptive purposes of God that will reach down the ages. And that's behind this family feud. It's marvellous to see a sovereign God behind the tiny details of what happens in this life. So we read in Psalm 105, which we'll be referring to from time to time in these next few evenings. It says in verse 17, God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold a slave. They did it out of envy and spite. The psalmist records, God sent a man ahead of them. God did it. And they say, well, that's all very nice, but why are we looking at that at the Bible week? Aren't we into uh, seeing the church and restoration? and the, What are we looking at Joseph for? Well, I believe God has many things to teach us about this young man. There's something about him that has a book of the Acts ring about it. Because he was a young man who dreamed dreams and saw visions. And as he shared what he saw with his brothers, we find they turned against him. And they didn't want to receive his vision. And we find that he was thrown out because of his vision, because of what he'd seen. And there, as he went through the training program of God, God ultimately brought him through and out and vindicated his vision and blessed his brothers for their the salvation of all his brothers, the whole family of God, and the salvation of Egypt, the world at that day. And I believe in all that, I can see what God is doing in his church today. As many have come to a new day of seeing visions and dreaming dreams, God says, in the last days I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh. You'll dream dreams, you'll see visions. And we've said, oh, it's glorious, we've come into it. And so often as we've shared that, it's not been well received. It's not been good news to some. Perhaps we've been obnoxious 17-year-olds. 
Perhaps we've lacked wisdom in the way we've shared it. But sure enough, the result, again and again, as I look around and know so many people in this tent and situations, they have found as they've shared their vision, instead of it being embraced and rejoiced in, they have found the left boot of fellowship. <laughs> and they have suffered for their vision and their dream. But I see a whole program in all this. And how God, in the end, isn't out to just save Joseph. That isn't God's purpose. God's purpose is to save all his people and to save the nation in a time of famine. Now we need, having seen the background and the reason that we're looking for this corporate Joseph to come and arise in these days, let's come back to the story then and learn some of the lessons that are there for us to learn. First of all, we see that the story of Joseph tells us that God is wonderfully sovereign. That's been with us this week. And if we go away with that from this week, we shall be strengthened in our faith. That God rules over the nations. God is supreme over all things. He's utterly supreme. He's not trying to keep up with the 20th century. God isn't trying to wonder, how can I cope with this modern age? The age of television. The age of modern thinking. How can I cope with it? Nor is God locked into mortal combat with his equal, the devil. Wondering how he can cope with him. And the devil's fighting and God's fighting back and we're locked into this. No, it's not that at all. The Bible speaks of a God who reigns over everything. Utterly, utterly supreme. It's so vital that we get hold of that, especially as so many have known what it is to be tossed about like Joseph. Once upon a time they were in the warm nest of fellowship with all their brothers. Now they're not. Now they're somewhere else. Do we still know who's on the throne? Do we know who is king? Can we see God working out his glorious purposes? Because that's the kind of God we have. He rule, rules over everything. And the way he establishes that isn't some vague rule from heaven, but he establishes his rule by being involved in glorious, tiny details. So that the timing of the whole experience of Joseph just ties up with these Ishmaelites who happen to be going through just at this moment of time. And just at that time, they say, well, let's sell him. And so the whole purpose of God takes on a fresh phase. We see that in the Bible again and again. You see the whole story of the book of Esther, which is a magnificent story, which has to do with the possible destruction of the whole Jewish nation of that day and tremendous hatred for the Jews and plans to destroy them as a people. And the whole story turns on one king having a dream one night, or at least not being able to sleep. I wonder if you thought about that in the camp. <laughs> the whole story just turns because a man couldn't sleep one night. And he just gets up and says, well, I can't sleep. Uh, and as he looks into the books of the records, there he discovers certain things that he should have adjusted and things he should have done. We haven't got time to go into it because the story of Esther is a somewhat complicated one. But it's marvellous to see how the whole thing is mightily turned around. The whole nation's policy about the Jews is changed one night because a man can't sleep. And God saves the nation through that. Again, one sees King Ahab. And uh, King Ahab 
God had said that he must die. He must be judged. And there Ahab goes out to fight a battle. And he goes with Jehoshaphat and he disguises himself and hides himself among the soldiers in the chariots. And there we read about it in 2 Chronicles 18. How he's disguised and hidden. Yet God has said he will judge him. And that he must die. And then in 2 Chronicles 18.33 it says, A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armour. And in the margin it says, Between the scale of armour and the breastplate. There's this man thinking he's being so clever. God has said, you'll die in this battle. And he thinks, well, if I go out as king, the, the enemies will come after me, they'll see me, they'll, they'll fight. So he disguises himself as another soldier. He, he just gets into armour and goes along with the others. And then it says, lovely in the old King James, it says, a man drew a bow at a venture. And it missed the venture and missed, hit Ahab. <laughs> now, the man had breastplate of armour on. And he had chain mail down his arms. And this man who was aiming at nothing drew a bow out of venture. Just thought, well, there's a whole crowd of them up there. I'll, I'll just have a go over there somewhere. And it penetrates between the breastplate and the armor. And Ahab is destroyed because God says he will be. That's what God is like, beloved. He is mighty over every tiny detail. He can turn a thing on a detail. And I hope you've got a God like that. That you can believe God in your circumstances like that. And we need to know God is that close to us. As we read some of the most beautiful stories of uh, God's smuggler, and we know, I'm sure, many here could testify of how God has helped them in extraordinary circumstances when it all looked impossible and suddenly things have sorted out. He is a God who reigns over all. So this is the God that we worship, the Sovereign Lord. You know, Voltaire said that in a hundred years, he who so despised the Bible, he said in a hundred years, this book will be forgotten. And uh, a hundred years later exactly, his house became the headquarters of the Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens <laughs> shall laugh. And we do need to know what it is to catch the laugh of heaven. Really to know the laughter of heaven. To know the glorious victory of our God who sits in the heavens and reigns supreme. Have you got that sort of a God? Your circumstances where you are now, feeling perhaps some of the pain of rejection and difficulty. Do you see God like that? Utterly supreme. They threw him out with spite. God sent them out in purpose. God sent Joseph ahead to save life and to do an enormous, mighty work. God is ruling the nations now. I love to sing that song. Ruling the nations now. Over the mighty nations. Over China, over India, over Russia, over the USA. He's ruling now. Not just over the saints. He rules the nations. He's a king. He lifts up men and puts them down. He closes off China and lets communism run rampant through it. He gets them learning a language. He 
sorts out a lot of idolatry through communism and then opens the door again and suddenly we hear the church is in revival in China. Extraordinary things happening because God is over everything. Or how we need to see this mighty, majestic, sovereign God. He's over the whole thing. Sovereign Lord. So the wonder of divine sovereignty. And then as we home in on Joseph, and each one of us involved in that, we want to see the wonder of divine choice. God chose Joseph. He was already beloved of his father, but that's quite secondary if God hadn't chosen him. Esau was beloved of his father, but God didn't choose him. God chose Jacob. The wonder of God's choice ought to cause us to just gasp in amazement. God chose Jacob rather than Esau even before they were born. Before they'd done either good or bad, God says, I chose Jacob. And on this occasion we read, God chose Joseph. And if you're a child of God, this is foundational to your peace and joy, that God chose you. I was once asked to give a testimony in, uh, I think it was a Nurses Christian Fellowship, at least I was asked to give a sermon, and they asked me uh, to speak on the subject, why are you a Christian? And as I thought about that, and I thought, well, I could have said, well, I looked into Hinduism, or I looked into Buddhism, and I, I looked into this, or I grew weary of that, and I tried this, and I've considered that, and that's why I've chosen. And I thought about it, I thought, that's not true. The re- there's only one reason I'm a Christian, There's only one answer the Bible can give. I'm a Christian because God chose me. That's the root of it. And Paul says in Thessalonians that he thanks God that he chose you from the beginning for salvation. You look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. There are many verses, of course, that we could look at to see that. But it's so important for us in our Christian lives, to know the reality of this, the security of it. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Not just chosen for particular works to do, though we'll see that in a minute, but if you're saved, it's because God chose you from the beginning through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. You can't get saved without believing the truth. But it's the work of the Spirit that does that in you. That's why when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to him, Oh, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. You haven't considered Hinduism and considered this and considered that and thought, Well, I believe in Jesus. You haven't thought about this and this. God, Jesus said it very plainly. I thank you, O Father, you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. He says there to Simon Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you, my Father has revealed it to you. And God reveals his truth to whom he chooses to. And that should grip you and thrill that, that God has broken through and chosen you for salvation. And Joseph was a chosen one. And so is every child of God who knows that they're born of him, that they're chosen by him from the beginning for salvation. Why? Is it because you were good? No, it was while you were bad. Is it because you were strong? No, it was while you were weak. That's why God has chosen you. That's how he's chosen you. 
Somehow, God foreknew you from before he founded the heavens and the earth and has been loving you with an everlasting love. God has loved you. It's not that you have decided to follow Jesus and you're gripping on and hoping against hope that somehow you're going to make this Christian life. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Before I fashioned the heavens and the earth, somehow in the mystery of God, he foreknew you and has been loving you from eternity. Hallelujah. Oh, to know that deep in your spirit brings such security. Such safety into our hearts. He's chosen you for holiness. He's chosen you to share his glory. He's chosen you to change you to be like Jesus. To conform you to his image. He's chosen you to bring to naught the things that are. That's why he's looked round for some weak people. So that he can bring to naught the things that are. He's chosen us for these purposes and he's chosen us for works foreordained of God that we should walk in them. Now when that grips us that we have been chosen of God for works that he has foreordained for us to walk in them we can take any pressure, any difficulty, any delay, any opposition, any hindrance because the almighty, eternal, everlasting God has laid hold of us and said, this is my chosen instrument to accomplish my purpose. So we're utterly secure. Because it's God who's at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And here Joseph, this adolescent, perhaps naive young man, who seemed to blow the whole thing, God has got him in his hand. Oh, it's wonderful to know that. And some of us, perhaps, have done things we wish we hadn't done. We've given a testimony rather foolishly. We've blown some situation and we think, oh, if only I'd been wiser. But if God has got his hand upon you, he can bring you through all those circumstances. What should be our response to that? Well, utter wonder and amazement. Paul never got over it. He said, I, I was a blasphemer. I even destroyed Stephen. He said, yeah, he chose me. He couldn't understand this grace of God. Utter wonder and amazement. Do you feel that as we come worshipping? That I, who was once nobody, can now enter into the holy presence of God. That God has shown grace and mercy and opened my blind eyes. Once utterly blind, without God, without hope, dead in trespasses and sins, God's quickened made alive together with Christ. Well, it ought to just cause us to be overwhelmed with wonder. That's the, that's the result it had in, in Paul's life. He couldn't get away from that wonderful theme that God had done it. And then it should also cause us to enter into rest and security. I'm safe in him. If he did it, I'm safe in him. Oh God, you are in Christ Jesus who's made unto you wisdom, righteousness, redemption, sanctification. That's of God. God did it. We're secure in him. And so you can abandon all your endeavours to justify yourself. Once upon a time, the Apostle Paul made a great thing of his background. 
He could say, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. I've done this, I've done that, I've kept all these rules. And he said, this was so important to me. But now, now I've got the righteousness which is of God by faith. I don't worry about any of these things. I abandon all these endeavours to justify myself before God. He entered into rest and peace. But then also, we can enter into excitement and anticipation. Because if God has chosen us for a purpose, he has a work for me to do. I'm not just a mass of reactions to circumstances. The modern philosophers and thinkers want to tell us, oh, this person had an act, uh, um, some kind of impression upon your life. That situation has changed you. This thing has made your character. But if we know that God is over the whole thing, that God is supreme, then I can say, well, with excitement, what will God do with my life? And we want to be like the Apostle Paul who says, I want to lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of by God. We can have great motivation for serving God with our whole heart because if it's God who started it, well, the potential's enormous. What can't we do? Because God is for us. God is with us. And if the Apostle Paul can be the Apostle to the Gentiles because God laid hold of him, then let us say, oh God, nothing's impossible because all heaven is behind me. All heaven is behind the man, the woman, whom God chooses. And everyone might try to be against him, but he knows he's called of God. That's why Nehemiah was able to keep building when all the opposition came against him. They tried subtle ways, they tried head-on opposition, and Nehemiah simply said, should such a man as I flee? Now, he wasn't just full of egotism, he just knew God had called him and he was in the place God wanted him to be. Now, if we are assured of God's call upon our lives and our being where he wants us to be, then nothing can withstand us. And we should be saying, oh God, I want to see the things that you called me especially to do. Those works that you foreordained for me. Wholehearted endeavour then, because I've got all heaven behind me. And then also, total freedom from man-pleasing. When we know God's called us to do a work, it's not our effort to keep other people happy. It's not to keep men happy. Paul says, if I'm a servant of God, well, I'm going to find it difficult to keep men happy. And you realise there was a big choice to be made. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you see something of Paul's testimony in this. How he saw his responsibility. He says in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 2, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. He says we've been entrusted by God. We've been enlisted by God. Therefore, it is God we seek to please. And it may be that our vision, our message, our testimony is inappropriate and not popular with some. Well, if we know that God's entrusted it to us, and in the end it is God who will try our hearts, it was God who will try our works, it is God who will apply the everlasting fire to our works, even as he has done in every revival 
as illustrated in Ananias and Sapphira, who brought forth their works, which were men-pleasing and not 100% for God. God just burned them up and they went. They were destroyed. God tries our works. And ultimately, he'll try all our works. Everything we do, it will be tried by God to see whether it was genuine or not. Whether it was with obedience and faith and love. God will try. And so Paul says, well, I know who I'm serving. I'm serving God. God is looking for a people in these days who know that they are called by God. That they're not just out to be on this committee and that committee and be called to this national executive and would you like to represent this group and we'd like to hear what you feel about these things but we'd like you not to be too radical, please. Don't wobble the boat. I've had things through the post recently. Will you come to this and come to that and sit on this? Really, one hasn't got time to just get on committees and be representing this and that because we're here to please God. And some of the things that we say will be offensive. But we're clear, oh God, you're going to try the whole thing in the end. It's you who tries our hearts. It's you who's entrusted us. And when we know it's for God, we'll shake free and do the thing God wants done in the earth today. You see, Moses went twice to do the work of God. And on that first occasion when he went, he was just moved by the need. And he saw the need of his brothers. And it says, he looked this way and that, and then he did it. So much of our work, when we don't know God has sent us, is like that. We're thinking, well, what's, what's he feel, and what are they saying? We're looking this way and that in doing the work of God. When Moses came the second time, knowing God had sent him, there was none of that to see what others thought. He just obeyed God. God said, I have come down to deliver them and I send you. Moses was just in fear and trembling knowing that God had laid hold of him. So it was God's work. You conscious of that in what we're doing? And though there may be great joy and laughter, that doesn't mean that we're irreverent. We're conscious that it's God's work, it's God's glory. And that's what it should do for us when we know that God has chosen us. So the wonder of God's mighty sovereignty and the wonder of God's choice, even of us, to serve him. But as we draw to a close this evening, we just need to be reminded that the actual story of Joseph doesn't turn on his response. It turns on the response of his brothers. As he, as he says, I'm seeing visions, I'm, I'm dreaming dreams his brothers turn on him. And that's where the story is dictated. Who do you think you are? Is the answer that comes. And uh, has a familiar ring about it. Who do you think you are? It's tragic when brothers respond to the blessing of another brother like that runs right through the Bible. It runs right back to Cain and Abel. And there you find back with Cain and Abel that in Genesis chapter 4 when that one brother is received and the other brother immediately reacts to it. And the Lord says to him in Genesis 4, 6, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not your countenance be lifted up? 
If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Now that is the first record in the Bible of one man being blessed by God and his brother reacting to it. And God says to that brother who looks on, he says, beware, sin is crouching at the door. Your brother has just been blessed. How are you going to react? Sin is crouching. It personalises sin, as though sin is like some foul beast waiting to see. How are you going to react? And if in your heart you say, why did he get blessed? Sin just wants to pounce and get right into your spirit and say, yeah, yeah, look at him. Who does he think he is? We find that coming right through the Bible, right back to that early day in Genesis, right through to where Jesus, centuries later, tells the story of a prodigal son who found grace in the eyes of his father and his big brother hated him for it. His big brother said, what are you doing this for? We find Jesus talks about that in the parable of the uh, labourers who had an arrangement to labour for a penny. And then God, in his infinite mercy and wisdom, chooses to give other people the same amount when they've just worked for a short time. And God is sovereign. God doesn't obey other laws. There is no authority over the throne of God which says fair play that God has to bow to. God is God. If he wants to choose Joseph, he'll choose Joseph. And you watch out how you react to it. That's the point. Because it's God that we have to do with. And we must see that though Joseph may be a young man and perhaps a bit obnoxious, you be careful if God's chosen him. Because here we see from Cain right down through the scripture, those who react just because others have been blessed. And some of us have been cornered. They say, oh, you're um, seeing visions, are you? Baptism in the Spirit, is it? Now then, you've been cornered like this? You're saying then that you've got something I haven't got. So, that's what you're saying, isn't it? Well, no, we're not saying that really. Well, wait a minute, you're saying that you've got the Holy Spirit which you didn't have and I haven't, so you're saying you're better than me, aren't you? Well, no, I'm not really, but you are. You're saying, oh, all right then. That so often happens. So that people get really hostile, really bitter. And I had a book sent to me in which the author speaks of what we're doing as the charismatic super sainthood movement of today. <laughs> the charismatic super sainthood movement. Not very popular. And so out it is kicked because people don't know how to cope with that. Now it's for us to beware that we are not overbearing, that we're not like Joseph, if he did act wrongly. But it is so vital that we see that if God chooses to bless in this kind of way, that it's a fearful thing to oppose God. The whole matter of spiritual authority is in this. It is God who makes the choices. It's God who works. And it's to do with the fear of God. God is going to say more and more about spiritual authority. God is going to emphasise, if we haven't heard it already this week, the place of foundational ministries. We're going to hear more and more about apostles and prophets. 
And brothers are going to have to stand up and say, well, I think perhaps I am. <laughs> um, uh, moving in an abortion ministry. <laughs> And uh, that's going to get us some happy response up and down the country. <laughs> Who do you think you are? What are they saying now? Apostles, is it? <laughs> and we are going to have to painfully say, there's my chin, hit it. <laughs> or else we hide and say, well, well, you know. And we'll start changing our terms in the way that Arthur spoke about the whole move of the Spirit so seriously and importantly and as it comes out so wonderfully in his book that we've changed the terminology we've said well we won't talk about this we'll talk about renewal we'll talk about inner release we'll, we'll change the terminology somehow to make it acceptable and we lose our edge and we lose our message and we lose the purpose of God and God says be humble but be honest and say if God has shown you a vision say it God has done something, declare it. Oh, not with pride and arrogance. I feel sometimes we're like those four lepers. They were outside the city and they were about to die and they said, well, look, we might as well throw ourselves on the enemy because we're going to die anyway. And the enemy was encircling the city and besieging it and those four lepers said, well, let's go and just throw ourselves on the enemy. They've got food. And they go down to the enemy and, and, and when they arrive there, the enemy has fled because God's done a miracle. And they go in and there's, there's a tent full of goodies. Oh, look, food, clothes, riches. And they go from tent to tent. Hey, look what we've got. Terrific. Look what we've discovered. We're only lepers, but we discovered it. And they say, well, this is terrific. And then they say, it's not a day to keep silence. Let's go and tell. That's all. Just ordinary lepers who stumbled on some wonderful things. And we're just saying, look what we've found. And tragically the answer has been, who do you think you are? <laughs> but it's got to be in our spirit. Say, oh God, we just want to be humble, but we must share what God's doing. We must be true to our vision. If God is freely giving us spoils of his triumph, then we're not going to disown them. We're going to say, no, we believe this. We're in the good of this. Because God's got an enormous purpose in all this. And God is going to bring this Joseph through. God is going to cause him to accomplish great things. And God's going to do that with an end-time church, a Joseph corporate company, who misunderstood whether their fault or others go out and go through great testings. Oh, just like David. The picture's there again and again in the Bible. David bursts on the scene, slays Goliath. You think, wow, here he goes. Where does he go? In the Dalazan's cave. In the wilderness. Into pressure. But God called him. For the good of the nation, actually. To bring the whole nation back to God and put their enemies down. The same with Elijah. Elijah bursts on the scene. He says, there will not be rain unless by my word. Boy, he's going to go now. Travelling ministry, no rain to back him up. City to city. <laughs> not at all. He just disappears. He goes off to Zarephath. We'll be talking about that later on. 
And then he emerges for the sake of the nation into center stage. God will bring forth this corporate church, this dreamer of dreams, this seer of visions, and will bring it right into center stage. This isn't some fringe thing. This is the purpose of God. This is the testimony of God. For the sake of a nation in terrible famine, awful famine, that's going to die morally, utterly bankrupt. And a church that doesn't know what to do. God is going to bring this Joseph through. Restore brothers. Save the world. That's God's program. This evening, let's just see. God's the one who writes the story. It's his work. We may be caught up in all kinds of strife and jealousy. We may have been wounded one side or the other. Let me just say to you, release situations in your spirit. Say, oh God, they meant it for evil, but you meant it for good. You're on the throne, Lord. I'm going to move with you, believe you, trust you, walk with you. And let's fear God. Let's check our hearts. How is your reaction when you hear of others getting blessed and others talking about this and that? How do you react? Are you one of those who say, who do they think they are? Perhaps you come here tonight just to come and see what this is all about. You don't really go along with it much, but you thought you'd perhaps come and see it. Let me say with all my heart, beware lest you find yourself fighting God. Beware lest you say, oh, look at them, all young, 17-year-old, immature, no tradition behind them. Who do they think they are? Let's begin to see that God could be over the whole thing. You could be fighting God. And let's say, oh God, you come and rule. You come and reign. You come and be Lord over the whole thing. We'll go through the furnace if necessary. But we will see your end product. We'll be part of it by your grace.